right. Well, John Legend, look out. Uh, I've already had some comments already from my brother. You, you, John, John Legend, look out. Well, we, I appreciate that. That was a very soulful and appropriate uh, rendition of Lift Every Voice and Sing. And I hope, even though we're bringing Black History Month to a close, that uh, that's, just because Black History Month is over doesn't mean you have to forget thinking about where we've come from and where we're going. So what a wonderful month we've had celebrating that. And we're also going to end this month uh, our series on Ephesians and um, ready to bring it to a close and see where the Lord is bringing us. So I'm just going to open up with a word of prayer and get straight into it. Father, I thank you for an opportunity to share your word. Lord, anoint my, my speech, anoint my thoughts to speak the words that the Holy Spirit would have me speak. Uh, I trust you, Lord, to do what you need to do today so that we can grow deeper in you through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, praise God, I'm excited that we've actually come this far in Ephesians. And actually, before I say another word, let me remind the men uh, with respect to our men's conference, not actually our men's conference, but uh, the Christian Cultural Center in New York uh, with our dear friend, Dr. A.R. Bernard and his son, Pastor Jamal Bernard. They're hosting a conference uh, men's conference, and we can all attend virtually. If you're a guy, uh, the cost is $50 per person. However, if you go with the group, it's $40 per person. So if you register through us, you go to our webpage, go to events, you click, you sign up, you can get the $40 rate. It is worth the investment um, because God has something that he wants to say to us men. And uh, there's all, all kinds of wonderful speakers. Uh, there are many from the sports world. Some of you know, if you're like me, you listen to ESPN. Actually, he's not on ESPN anymore. He's on Fox News. But Chris Broussard is going to be there. But also some other athletes are going to be there who love the Lord, who are going to be talking to us about our manhood and other important speakers there as well. So it's worth the investment. I know it's virtual, but we look forward to people joining us. Uh, so go ahead and sign up for that. That said, I'm going to get straight into this message here, and we are continuing our lesson on Ephesians here. This is our last one, and depending on where we were in the series, we gave groups of messages within the series different titles. Well, today is the last message in the series, and I've titled it something different, and it's titled, Lord, I Want to Be a Christian. Lord, I Want to Be a Christian, and thinking about that wonderful rendition of of lift every voice and sing. What's important here is, Lord, I want to be a Christian is also the title of an African-American spiritual. Some of you know, and it's appropriate given, of course, we're celebrating Black History Month. This is our last day. Uh, the title is also important because it distills the essence of Ephesians, which really is a brief manual on what it means to be a Christian. Okay, so today what I want to do is sum up what we've learned about Christianity over the course of the series and then expound on the final sections of the letter. So here we go. We're going to talk about what it means to be a Christian. I really think we need to understand that because people need to measure their, if they call themselves a follower of Christ, they need to measure their actions, their attitudes, and their behaviors against which the, what the Scripture says is important for being a Christian. And I'm going to re review a bit about what we've covered and then take us into the final sections of the letter. So with respect to review, we started the series talking about Roman family law. And that sounds obscure and odd, but actually it is because, see, Paul used language that would have been familiar to the Ephesians. He uses the language that they would have understood regarding their culture, regarding their law. And as he uses that language, it helps us to understand who we are in Christ and how that relates to us as children of God. 
Uh, family law in Rome, we talked about this, centered on the paterfamilias or the oldest male in the family. Paterfamilias is a Latin term. Romans spoke and wrote Latin in the time. And the paterfamilias, as we said, had legal ownership of everything, even his wife and children. The paterfamilias sought the glory of his legacy through his heirs. Really, really important because we're going to see a corollary between the earthly paterfamilias and the heavenly paterfamilias. But the paterfamilias sought the glory of his legacy through his heirs. And if the paterfamilias had no children, or if his birth children were not worthy, if he deemed them not worthy for his inheritance, he would adopt an heir, right? So how does this apply to us? Well, by way of analogy, Paul presents God as our heavenly uh, paterfamilias. We use the analogy also of the Godfather when we talked about this. And the paterfamilias, again, going back to it's a Roman culture dynamic, and it, in, in some ways is tied to the, our concept, uh, the mafia in terms of the cultural traditions and what have you. And we ask you to think about the movie The Godfather, right, and with respect to the role the paterfamilias would play in this home. But God is our heavenly paterfamilias. And God did not need to adopt an heir because he already had one who was worthy in Jesus. However, because of his love for us, God adopted us and gave us the status of his favorite son. We talked about that, how we sit in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And it, the, it would be as if the Queen of England came to you who live in America and have no royal lineage, if she adopted you and say, you now sit on the throne with my son Charles. That's essentially what God the Father did when he adopted us into the family. He is our heavenly potter familias. Now, we learned that as we sit with the favorite son, as we share the status of the favorite son, there are things that are now true about us in Christ. What does that mean? In Christ, we are blessed, chosen, predestined, adopted, sons, redeemed, forgiven, wealthy, wise, heirs, sealed, seated, and even poetry. We are God's poetry. Not going to expand on that because we covered that in other lessons, but these are the wonderful things that are true about us. Now, here are a couple of statements I want us to make sure we have as we begin to finish our uh, our focus on Ephesians, some things that are really, were really important when we covered this earlier, and that is the first principle is believe before you behave. Believe before you behave. I can't reiterate this enough because this is the essence of the gospel. We are not saved by works. Our behavior does not save us. Our behavior does not deliver us. The first thing we must do is believe. And oftentimes we mix that up. But I want to go to the passage of Scripture that we addressed that, uh, that gave us this, this concept. And that is Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. So important. I stand here as the pastor of this church, but I can't boast about anything I've done Right. Because anything that I've done that is Christ-like, it's only because of the grace of God. I need the grace of God just as much as someone who's 
who's committed a serious crime. I need the grace of God just as much as someone uh, that is on that 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 has done things that are obviously evil or or or, or bad, right? I have no and me being a preacher, me being come up from coming from a preacher's family, me having done things that I, that one might perceive as being right. None of that gives me advantage. I am utterly dependent on the grace of God to do anything right. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what's interesting here is that many people believe, see, what happens is, and we talked about this, people come to church, and we, we church people, we're guilty of giving people, leaving people with this impression, and then, they, and then they follow suit. Many people behave to prove that they believe. Right? We look at people and say, you ain't a Christian. If you were a Christian, you wouldn't do X. If you, were, if you were a Christian, you wouldn't do Y. And there's a place to hold people accountable for behavior. I'm not saying that. Obviously, part of my message has been that. But what happens is we begin to look at people and say, well, if you're, you, you, know, you need to show that you're a Christian. This is a doctrine of works, okay? What God asks us to do is God asks us to believe to access the power to behave. We have no hope of acting the way God asks us to act if we don't first believe because by believing we get access to the grace or the power to behave. This is the doctrine of faith. It's God's power. Our choice is God's power. It's God's power that gives me, I've been married to my wife for 20 years faithfully. That's by the grace of God. That's not that's more than willpower and discipline and values. It's the grace of God that I'm faithful to my wife. It's the grace of God that I haven't robbed somebody. It's the grace of God that I'm not a criminal. It's the grace of God that I haven't done something dishonorable. Not because I'm just disciplined and, I, you know, I'm a good guy and all that kind of stuff. None of that I can boast about. It is the grace of God. We should have that same testimony. We should not be boasting in anything we've accomplished that is righteous because if we do anything righteous, it's only because of the grace of God. Here's another principle connected to the thing, the idea of believing before behaving, and that is the principle of sit before you walk. We talked about the analogies of sit, walk, and stand from Watchman Nee, really from Ephesians, but the theologian Watchman Nee comments on, and I'm going to read the passage, Ephesians 2 and 6, it says this, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Didn't I tell you that God seated us next to the favorite son the way the Queen Elizabeth might have, again, by way of analogy, imagine the Queen of Elizabeth adopting you and seating, having you sit next to King Charles. This is essentially what God did. I mean, Prince Charles, not a king yet. Uh, Prince Charles, right? And so that's, the, that's exactly what God did. He has us seated next to Jesus in heavenly places. We have the status of the favorite child, Right? But here's this issue with seating, sitting, right? Seating represents authority, but also rest and completion. I like the way Watchman Nee does, uh, articulates it. I'm quoting him from his book, The Process of uh, Sit, Walk, Stand, The Process of Christian Maturity. This is what he says. Christianity begins not with a big do, but with a big done. So one of the re another reason why we don't we don't we don't try to earn our salvation by works is because God already did it. 
Jesus already fulfilled the standard of righteousness for on our behalf, so there's nothing more for us to do to earn righteousness. It's been earned for us by Jesus. And so the first thing we should do as a Christian, we should have faith and sit ourselves down and receive from Jesus the grace that empower us to live the way he wants us to live. Oh, we're busybodies. We, we, even though the, the Scripture tells us we're saved by grace, we don't believe it. We, we walk around trying to earn our keep. In the analogy I used before, it's as if you were an adopted child, but you don't really believe that the adopt, the, your, 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 your family has really embraced you. And so you're doing all these things to prove that you're worthy when Jesus is already worthy, and that's no longer an issue. It's been settled, but you're still working for it. And, and, and it, it would be like coming to this adoptive family, and the first thing you do is try to clean the house and cook the meals, and the family's like, sit down, eat with the rest of us. Enjoy your food. Receive your blessing. You are a son. You are a daughter. You don't have to do all of that. We already love you. That is what God is saying to us. We must first know that our identity, destiny, and security are settled in heaven before we can walk with confidence on the earth. We have to be clear about that or we'll never behave the way Jesus desires us to behave. And so the next thing we talked about is that we must walk in a way that is worthy. We, we've discussed that for the last couple of weeks, and our, the Scripture I want to point us to with respect to that is Ephesians 4.1. It says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So yes, at some point, God expects you to behave, but that's assuming you believe. That's assuming you're trusting in Jesus to be righteous. That's assuming you're trusting in the grace of God to be righteous. But once that's settled, now you can walk because now you got power. But he expects you to walk worthy of the calling. In other words, you've been adopted into the royal family. Now act like a royal. And I talked about it in the last couple of weeks. When you're part of the royal family, you don't have, you cannot just act the way you want to act or talk the way you want to talk or walk literally. You can't walk any kind of way. You can't eat any kind of way. There is a way that royals act, and you are literally part of a royal family when you enter into the family of God. Now, let's get more into this behavior issue I want to expound on. We talked about it last week. We compared it to acting. You see, God wants us to be good actors. Well, what do you mean, right? Well, let me explain to you. Acting, and I, again, this is inspired by a YouTube video I saw from Will Smith, and he was tutoring somebody in acting, and he was actually expounding on the craft. And this is what he says. He starts off his conversation with saying, well, acting is literally about actions, right? In good acting, actions are not a cause but a result. So, so, so a, 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 an immature actor, an actor who doesn't really understand the graph, they just, try to, they just try to imitate actions. But you don't actually start with actions, right? Bad actors begin with an external process. Good actors begin with an internal process. In fact, acting is not mere pretending, but identification 
with a character. Good acting is not mere pretending, but identification with a character, and that's the key. When you hear professionals who are actors interviewed, they talk about their character. They understand the character. They empathize with the character. They don't judge the character. They just identify with the character, and that identification is the power that makes their portrayal of the character so convincing. For good actors, the identification is so strong that it affects not only their actions, but also their thoughts and beliefs. And let me tell you, and actors know this, that there are places you can go in acting where you can go too far. And I remember the, uh, was, it, was it Heath Ledger who uh, played the Joker? Uh, in uh, one of the Batman movies, and he did an excellent job, and I believe it was uh, uh, Nicholson, uh, that the uh, last name Nicholson. I'm trying to recall his first name. Y'all know who I'm talking about, right? He warned him about the character. He said, because he played the Joker in another Batman movie, he said, be careful now. Be careful now. And I don't know if the way he portrayed it led to his death, but Actors know that there's places you can go that you, that you, it can take you so far in the character where you don't know how to come back, where you've identified too much with the character you are playing. I was, I'm also thinking about Will Smith, and in his tutorial on YouTube, he talked about when he was uh, starring in Six Degrees of uh, Separation, he used a certain kind of method to act. In fact, I think he called it method acting, and he says he doesn't use that method anymore. Because he said when he used that particular method, he got so far into what he was doing that he discovered that, he, that the regular person he is in life is also a character. And it scared him. So he says, now I don't do that anymore. I use other methods. And they're all different methods to come into your character. But he got so you know, deep into it. And so, 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 but, but that's how powerful acting is, right? Good actors can identify so strongly with a character that they can convincingly portray people to whom they bear no physical, economic, or cultural resemblance. That's good acting. When you see somebody and you say, oh, who is that? You know, immediately, and they look nothing like the character they're portrayed. They don't act like them in real life or anything. But if they can convince you that they're that person, that's how deeply they've identified with the character. Now, why am I talking about this? Well, from God's perspective, we're all actors. We all identify with a character at a deeply personal level and behave accordingly. There's a person that we think we are. There is a person that we think we are, we identify with that person, and then act like that person. And so what what Ephesians is telling us and what God is telling us is that Jesus is asking us to change our identification. Because once you change that, you change the behavior just like a good actor does. Because acting is not good acting, it's not mere pretending. Uh, Ephesians 4, 24, this is where we see this. It says, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life. And it's corrupt through deceitful desires. So what is he talking about here? Put off your old self. He's talking about your physical body? Nope. He's talking about the person you are in your heart. Put that person off. And to be renewed, verse 23, in the spirit of your minds, verse 24, and to put on the new self 
created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. What is God asking us to do? Stop identifying with the self you were before you met me. Stop identifying with the self you were before you met me and identify with the self you are now that you know me. Because he told us, I listed all those adjectives. The Scripture says that what are we? We are blessed, chosen, predestined, adopted, sons, redeemed, forgiven, wealthy, wise, heirs, sealed, seated, poetry. We're all these things. He said, now act like that. Identify with that. Identify with Christ, and then you will begin to act like Christ. The same way an actor identifies with a character, we must identify with the character of Christ and then act like him. Let's continue. I broached the subject of sexuality, and I want to just say a few more things about that because it, it well, number one, it's a hot topic. And the hot topic is saying it lightly, given all the things that are going on in our culture, uh, in, our, in our legal system, in our state. Certainly, there are executive orders being uh, advanced by our president. There are dynamics going on, things like toys and things of that matter. And, of course, broadly in our culture, commercials and, 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 and politics and all these different things. And so I, 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 this issue of how we behave, has become an important thing because people are asking questions about what are the implications for that and sexuality. I'm going to speak to it briefly. I addressed it last week, but I'm going to address it briefly here. And here's what I want to say, and I think it corresponds with the issues we've addressed is, look, you don't have to be straight, cisgender, or have the felt sense of being sexually binary to be a Christian. That's not the emphasis of Scripture to change your sexuality. Let me explain what that means, though, okay? So that's the first thing I want to say. We talked about, again, that the first move is not behavior. The first move is not behavior, nor does the Scripture get into our modern concepts of sexual identity. It doesn't even deal with that. These aren't even categories in the Scripture. Do you know why? Because the because this Bible says it doesn't matter. When you come to Jesus, you got to change your identity anyway. It doesn't matter how you were born because the Bible says you have to be born again. So the Scripture is not even getting into all of that. All the Scripture is saying, whatever you were, that's the old self. You died of that. Now that you met me, you're a new person. You're a new person. So he's not coming to you saying, hey, you got to change all this before you engage with me. He said, no, 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 no. Be born again. Identify differently. Believe differently. Now, I said a few terms in my statement that I want to clarify for people who are not familiar uh, with some of this terminology. And some of it we know, for example, straight, right? I mentioned the word straight. Straight means that you're attracted to the opposite sex in a sexual or romantic way. I'm quoting from uh, Healthline.com. These are some of these definitions. Uh, I use the term cisgender. And when we think about cisgender, the prefix cis means on the same side as. So uh, this refers to people who, are, people who are cisgender remain on the same side of the gender they were initially identified at, as at birth. So people, a cisgender person is a person who is biologically male and identified with being male. Uh, a cisgendered uh, woman is a person who was born biologically a woman and identifies as a woman. The other term I used was binary. And uh, most people who have the felt sense of being sexually binary 
don't identify this way formally because binary basically means that one is either male or female or one uh, is either attracted to men or attracted to women. It's one or the other. Well, there's some people who identify in a non-binary way, and the term non-binary can mean different things to different people, but I'm quoting from, again, healthline.com. But at its core, it's used to describe someone whose gender identity isn't exclusively male or female. And if you continue looking at it, there's all kinds of categories and nuances, and if you want to learn more about that, you can talk to the sociologist and the psychologist and the politician, and that's their arena. But I'm saying in terms of the Bible, it doesn't get into those identities because the only identity that matters in Christ is Christ. The contemporary categories for gender expression and identity are not recognized by Scripture. Scripture deals with how you identify and Scripture deals with how you behave, but it doesn't get into how you feel on the inside because it says that's irrelevant to what I'm asking you to do. The scripture says that there are passions of the flesh that are expressed in the desires of our body and our mind. And those passions have to be subject to the spirit. That goes for everybody. People who are in the LGBT community don't get a special pass. That applies to them. It applies to people who aren't in the community. Anybody who comes to Christ, and Jesus says this himself, must deny themselves. You cannot make an idol of you and say, Jesus, okay, I will follow you, but these are my qualifications. And we see in Scripture where we see people like that. we say, yeah, I'll follow you, but wait, let me bury my parents first. Or I'll follow you, but let me do this. Or I'll follow you, but let me do that. And, And Jesus says, you're not worthy to follow me. If you don't regard me higher than your mother and your father and your brother and your sister, Jesus uses more explicit terms than that. I'm just being more palatable here. But he's saying if you value anything above me, even you, even your identity, you're not worthy to follow me. That's everyone's requirement to follow Jesus. That's step one. It's identifying with Jesus. Let me continue here. So the emphasis of Scripture is not on changing your sexuality, but on changing your heart. Once your heart changes, you will see sexuality differently. This is because you will look at sexuality from the vantage point of the one who created both sex and sexual expression. You'll be talking to the creator of the very thing you regard. From his perspective, his intention for humanity about those issues, but his intention for you about those issues. And once you see differently, you will act differently. So enough on that. I will at some point come back to this, I think, the issues in our society and the ways in which, again, uh, the state, uh, the, 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 the entertainment industry, law, all these other kind of things, Things are happening to such a degree that I'm, I'm going to need to address this issue uh, much more publicly and much more extensively. And so I'm praying about how I will do that. But for now, I will leave it here so we can finish this series on Ephesians. Okay, so the second half, the, this last portion of Ephesians is, is about, uh, deals with authority and submission. 
And I'm not going to read Ephesians 5, 21 through, uh, or, or I'm not going to read the rest of Ephesians 5 in the beginning of the Ephesians 6, but I'm just going to broach the main concepts here. So um, I'm going to go back to what we said earlier about the Potter Familius and Roman family law, because here's where it really does apply. So a word on the Roman cultural reality. So when we look at Ephesians 5 and 6, we see three key relationships in Roman life. The relationship between husband and wife, between parents and children, and between masters and slaves. Here's another interesting thought. We've stated it earlier, but if you were married to a powder familius, you were related to your husband in three ways. You were a virtual daughter to him. How is that? Because legally, you have the same status of your, as your children. Right? And we said this earlier. This is why it was so revolutionary for Paul to say, husbands, love your wives, because... Legally, she was property. She had the legal status of children, and children had the legal status of slaves. So to think of your wife beyond property and as a person was revolutionary, right? The other thing is, of course, you were his wife, and then you were a virtual slave for the reasons I mentioned before. Legally, your husband owned you, right? What's interesting is God is related to us in the same three ways. God is our father. God is our husband, right? We are, we are married to him, not individually, but collectively, and we've talked about that already. And God is our master. So there's more going on here than being politically correct. And I know that people want to, these passages of Scripture with respect to authority and submission and marriage, particularly with respect to marriage and with respect to masters and slaves, people get you know, uptight about it because this just doesn't seem right. And as I've said before, look, a hundred years from now, people are going to critique what you do. Uh, you know, uh, they, they're going to critique what you do. So here's, here's the thing. Uh, if we stop reading things that have things that are not politically correct, there's all kinds of things we could never read, right? So anything before, say, 1960 or 1980, you know, I'm a college professor. We read things like the Iliad and, and, and the Odyssey. We read Shakespeare. We read Milton. We read all kinds of things. And if you, had, if you couldn't read anything that, was polit- that, that wasn't aligned with what was politically correct, then you couldn't read a lot of stuff. So much of our general education, when you go to college, you got to take general ed courses, and so many of those courses would have to be canceled if we couldn't read the texts. So the Bible is in that category. It has language that maybe you may not appreciate because our contemporary moral and ethical standards broadly are different. And yet God used this time and period to communicate universal truths. So let me say some things about this. I call it the divine conspiracy. There's actually a book named, uh, titled that. It's really good. But let me say some things about this. First of all, as our heavenly potter familias, God is the Godfather in the truest sense. And I mean it in the gangster sense, right? He's not doing anything wrong, but he really controls things that on the surface look like somebody else controls it. The same way the mafia might control a city, and on the outside, it may not look that way. In fact, the people who are doing uh, organized crime, they will walk around in broad daylight with covers, right? They might have a store or a cleaners or something to suggest they're doing a legitimate business when in reality, they're not, right? And so they may act like they're a regular citizen, but because of their military power and because of their money, they control the mayor. They control the police department. They control the cleaners. They control everything in that block or that city. And the same way is with God. And so here's the deal when it comes to authority. 
This is why God asks us to honor human authority. God honors human authority and asks us to do the same because all authority belongs to him. Just like the mafia would say that the police officer belongs to me and the mayor belongs to me and the cleaners belongs to me, so do what I tell you to do because I really run it all, right? God has the same attitude. This is why when we resist authority, we are resisting God, right? And so when the mafia comes in town and, and, and he, you know, he's coming around and he's, act, you know, he's not in his gangster mode, but he's in his cover, and he sees you not responding to what he asked you to do, he's going to say, hey, what you doing? Well, well, you know, the, the sign says I got to do X. No, 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 no. I run this town. You do what I say. And I know the police officers are going to tell you to follow the red light. I'm telling you to run the light for something I need you to do. Now do what I say, right? What is the gangster saying? He's emphasizing the fact that all authority in that town belongs to him. God's saying the same thing. And so you have people who are in, on the surface, exploitive situations. A wife who is owned by her husband. A slave who is owned by his or her master. A child who is owned by the parents. And what kind of power do you have? Well, guess what? You are under the authority of God when you are under human authority. So there's something more going on than meets the eye. Why is that important? Because the world is networked to God through authority. So it's almost like God owns the authority, but then he hacks into the system like somebody would hack into the internet and manipulates it to work on his behalf. So when he tells you to submit, He's got something else going on more than what you can see physically in the submission. Because from the world's perspective, you're at a disadvantage, but to God's perspective, you are at an advantage because when you submit to authority, you are submitting to God's care. The mafia will tell you, do what I say, and I'll take care of you. You charge this price, I'll make sure this doesn't happen to you. These other gangsters won't bother you. I'll make sure you get a cut. Do what I tell you, and it will be, a, I know what the police said. I know what the mayor said. I know what the customer said, but I run this town. And that's what God is saying to you. I know what they're trying to do to you, but guess what? I run this. This is my authority. I manipulate this. It's going in the direction that I want to go. They may not know, but you know me, so you're going to have to do what I tell you. God interacts with us through authority to manipulate the human experience. Authority is a tool that God wields to shape human history into submission to his ultimate design. And this is why we shouldn't be worried about who's in office after we didn't vote it. Now, you vote, and after you vote, leave it to God, because God manipulates people in authority to do the things he wants them to do. This is going to a place we can't see, but God knows. Whether it's a Republican or a Democrat, God manipulates folks in authority. Why? Because it's his authority. They are chess pieces to him. And God manipulates, just like when you play chess, you have, you know, this, a, a rook in, in chess does a certain kind of thing. A king in chess does a certain kind of thing. A queen in chess does a certain kind of thing. And depending upon the kind of chess pieces you have on the chess table will determine the kind of moves you can make. Well, God says, okay, I got a Republican. Okay, I'm going to use this person's personality and preferences to navigate them this way. Oh, this person's a Democrat. Okay, I'm going to use this person's preferences and personality to navigate them this way. But well, whoever it is, I'm going to use them to do what I want to do. What I want to do. 
Forget the Illuminati. Forget the mafia. You better not cross God. Because at the end of, at the, end of the day, and I was watching, what was I watching? Doctor Strange. I was watching Doctor Strange last night, Marvel movie. One of the characters said, hey, the bill comes due. The bill comes due. You're going to pay the piper. God's the piper. Let's continue. Empowerment through submission. Listen, we can safely and securely submit to human authority because we're worried about, well, what they going to do? You know, well, God, you, you telling me to submit what they going to do? That's never something that God invites us to ask. But let me tell you why you can be secure about submitting to authority. First of all, Jesus is seated above all other authorities. So number one, he's the head honcho. Jesus asks us to submit to authority, not abuse. So come on, we don't look at these principles of submission apart from other biblical principles, okay? So we just don't just, just follow things and don't consider all the dynamics involved. Clearly, God does not want us to submit to abuse. As I said earlier, people in authority are held accountable by God and manipulated like chess pieces. So when you submit, you know for sure God's going to handle whoever you're submitting to. For believers, here's the thing. The power question is settled. This is why we don't fight for power. Because the power question is settled. Guess what? God has all power. I don't have it. What I'm fighting for it for? Why, why, why am I trying to grab it? Why am I trying to make sure this person doesn't get it? You know what? None of that matters because all power belongs to God. And he shares it with me. So why am I worried? I'm good. I sit next to the favorite son. I'm okay. All power belongs to God, so we don't have to fight for it anymore. This leaves us free to submit and serve. This is what I told you before, that if we're not first secure in who we are in Christ, we could never apply Ephesians 5 and 6. We'd never submit to anybody. Why? Because we think the power question is unsettled, that somehow God has left me vulnerable. And this person, if I submit to them, they're going to do something to me. And God is saying, what did I tell you? You're worthy. You're seated. You're redeemed. You're wealthy. You're wise. you got grace. All these other kind of things. So wherever I send you, you can know that I got you. And if they don't act right, they're going to have to deal with me. God not only has authority over the church, but over authority itself. We're almost done here. Whew. Now listen, because all authority comes from God, when we submit to authority, we are submitting to God's care, what he calls his mighty hand. You see it in Peter and other passages of Scripture. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. When we are humble, this is a relationship between us and God, not, not another person. Another person is involved, and maybe in the natural we're submitting to them, but really we're submitting to God. And when we are in submission, we are submitting to his care and all the ways in which he wants to take care of us, all the grace, the provision, the insight, all of those things are tethered to us submitting to him because human authority structures are his authority. God gives power to those who submit to his. He exalts the humble. I won't expound on that, but we understand that. Okay, a few takeaways from this last part of Ephesians. Then I'm going to say a few things about chapter 6, and we'll be closing this letter out. So takeaways from Ephesians 5 and Ephesians 6. 
Listen, Jesus is always the ultimate authority in human relationships. We have to keep that in mind. He is the boss, right? In Christ, we all have the status of the favored son. Women have it, men have it, children have it, slaves have it, masters have it, and because of that, we are still honored in Christ. So whatever our earthly status is, we have a status in Christ that supersedes that. The spirit of Christianity is submission and service. No one escapes that. No one's too good for that. No one's too good to submit and serve. Because Jesus submitted, submitted and served, and if he did it, why can't we do it? When we say, I, I can't submit because they're going to take advantage of me, you're saying you're above Jesus. Because Jesus was willing to submit and serve to the death, even though he had a right to not go to the cross. So when we refuse submission and service, we are exalting ourselves above Jesus. We submit and serve out of our freedom in Christ, not out of our bondage to humans. We don't serve people because we're in bondage. We serve because we're free to serve them, because the power question has been settled, because God has taken care of me, because God has already esteemed me. I don't need to find esteem and try to fight with you over power. It's settled so I can rest and just serve as if I was serving God directly. If you're reading Ephesians 5 and 6 and your main concern is who's the boss, you've missed the point. Jesus is the boss. Jesus is the boss. From the world's perspective, those who serve and submit have the least power, but from God's perspective, servants have the most power. All right, final passage. I'm going to read here, and we're going to close Ephesians out. I'm very excited about this, Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. I'm going to read this in its entirety, and then I'm going to comment on this here. Ephesians 6, 10 through 18, it says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand, stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. There are many things that I can say about what we read, but there are a few key things that I want to say about this as we conclude this series. If you read this, what's very clear is, our enemies are from another dimension. Our enemies, my enemies, your enemies are from another dimension. Their origin is not in the things that you can see. When it says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, 
And you know, you know what time it is, you, all the political controversies, the racial controversies, the, the, the legal controversies, all those kind of things. That's not the origin of the controversy. The origin of the conflict is from another dimension. And so we can spend all our energies trying to fight an enemy we can see when at the end of the day, they're not the enemy. So to fight our true enemy, we fight those enemies using tools from that dimension, not this one. We can't look to this dimension to try to overcome an enemy from a different dimension. We must be equipped spiritually. And remember that we are first seated in heavenly places. God commands us to stand. Here's the statement he keeps saying. He's not really saying fight. He says we wrestle against flesh and blood, but his command is not fight. His command is stand. Why is that? God commands us to stand because our position in Christ is secure. Our position in Christ is secure. It's not going anywhere. It doesn't matter who's president, who's not, who's in Congress, who's not, who's, who's the Supreme Court and who's not, what laws they pass or don't pass, what, what quarantines they have or don't have, what vaccines they have or don't have. It doesn't matter because who we are in Christ is secure. So he says, stand in that. That's how you fight the devil. From the very beginning, the enemy tried to convince Adam and Eve that their position was insecure. They questioned their status with God, and that was their downfall. If the enemy can do that, if the enemy can get you to stop identifying with Jesus, he has won. Which is why the true fight is to maintain our identification with Christ. Everything else takes care of itself. The devil wants you to give up. He wants you to stop praying. He wants you to stop worshiping. He wants you to stop reading scripture. He wants you to stop uh, uh, thinking that the things you do for Christ matter. If he can do that, he has won the battle. So put on your armor, the helmet, the shield, the belt, the shoes. These are all spiritual weapons that keep us rooted in Christ Jesus. Now, some of you are out there and your relationship with Jesus is just not intact. That's just the reality of it. And if there was ever a time to come to Jesus, it's now. Folks, what we've seen in the past year, that's just the appetizer. That's just the appetizer. Our world is changing, and it's, it's being prepared for a battle, a cosmic battle between good and evil that will take place on this earth, but it's, I shouldn't even call it a battle. It's not going to take that long <laughs> because God is allowing time for the enemy to put together his best shot. The enemy has not put together his, his best shot yet. His best shot will be the Antichrist. One day that person will come and emerge. And we're, this is just, we're just, we're just, it's just a matter of time. I don't know when, I don't know the day or the hour. I don't know exactly if it'll happen in my lifetime or not, but I'm saying the things that are happening are moving in that direction and we're getting ready for that battle. And you, listen, you don't want to be on the Antichrist side. Now you say, most people will say, I don't want to follow the Antichrist, but here's, here's how he'll get you. It's by doing things that appeal to your lusts, to the lust of your flesh, to the desires of your body and mind. If you are identified more with that than with Christ, the Antichrist will get you too. You think you wouldn't, but you will. 
The scripture says that the, 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 many will be, will be deceived. Many. Because they're identifying more with their flesh than with the spirit. You don't want to be like that. This morning you have an opportunity to draw closer to Jesus and reinforce your security in him. If that's you, I want you to pray with me. Maybe you're a person who's never come to faith or never followed Jesus. Perhaps you're a person who has been a part of Christianity, technically, but you've never actually committed personally. Or perhaps you're somebody who just needs to get back into the things of God after having not been focused on Jesus. If you're in any of those categories, I want to pray for you. Repeat after me. Dear God, I come to you now, and I submit my life to Jesus. I declare him as my Lord. I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, shed his blood, was buried, and was resurrected, and that when he was resurrected, he rose from the dead, having conquered my sins. And because of that, I can live a righteous life. Because of the grace of God, I can live a holy life. Father, fill me with your spirit that I may continue to live in a way that is pleasing to you. Thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you prayed that prayer for the first time or for the first time in Minted, or maybe you had to repray this prayer because you need to reconnect with Jesus, any of those reasons, I want you to type Zoe Save to the number on your screen. Type Zoe Save to the number on your screen. Some of you have asked about being a member. So if you can type Zoe member to the number on your screen, if that's something that's that's something you'd be like you'd interested in, type Zoe member to the number on your screen if you want to become a member, or type Zoe saved to the number on your screen if in fact uh, that is something that has just transpired because of the prayer we just prayed together. So friends, it's been a pleasure being with you. God is so good. And I tell you, um, the life in Christ is a wonderful one. God has much in store for us. Look, I'm looking forward to next month because next month, we, as we indicated, we're going to respond to some of your questions, and we got some things in store for you that will be really special, so look forward to that. But with that said, God bless you, and enjoy the rest of your Sunday.